Welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theater Company, and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series on all things theatrical. We have a very special guest today, the playwright um, Lolita Chakrabarti, who is the author of Him, uh, which is the next production at Burning Coal, which opens on January 25th and runs through February 11th here at Burning Coal Theater. Uh, Ms. Chakrabarti, uh, thank you very much for joining us. And please correct me if I've mispronounced your name. No, that's beautifully done. Hi, Jerome. How are how are things going with you right now? You're in uh, in England, I presume. I am. I'm in London. Um, yeah, things are pretty good. It's been a nice, uh, quiet Christmas and New Year, which has been brilliant. It's been such a busy time. So I've currently got a couple of productions on. Um, yes. uh, I, I mean, I'm an actor as well as a writer, so I have two uh, productions on that I've written, and then I'm about to start rehearsing a play. So I adapted Life of Pi for the stage, which is currently going around Britain on a tour. And uh, Hamnet, Maggie O'Farrell's novel Hamnet, is in the West End. Um, right. Yeah, so those are my <clears throat> projects. And you started out as an actor, is that correct? Yeah, and I still am an actor. I'm about to start a play, actually, that comes to St Anne's Warehouse in New York. So, oh, um, nice. yeah, I'm still acting. Excellent. And uh, and you you were born in uh, in England, I believe, in Hull. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, in Yorkshire, I was born there. Were your parents uh, in the theatre in some way, or how did you get involved in that? No, my parents were not at all in the theatre. My dad's an orthopaedic surgeon, retired now, uh, and my mum uh, was a housewife, so no, no theatre connections at all. Um, I got into drama through school. So I found it at primary school when I was six years old, uh, and we did little plays at school. I was like, gosh, what is this? Whatever it is, I like it. And slowly as I went through the school system, um, yeah, I just I just found different ways of doing it. And I had a great drama teacher at my secondary school. So when I was 12, she took me under her wing and really showed me how and where I could find theatre. It's astonishing how, how much impact a, a good teacher can have on the life of a, of a person and and by extension, all the people in that person's life as well. Absolutely. It's crucial, I think. I think my English teacher who taught me Shakespeare was also really crucial because actually she unlocked it for me when I was 13, 14. And, and that has been a lifelong love. So teachers are key. We're, um, we're, we're often taught Shakespeare as if it were um, uh, uh, literature to be read. Um, but, uh, but I think that uh, speaking those words can have a, a more immediate impact, especially for, for young people who are maybe put off by some of those old tomes. Uh, did Is that when you decided you wanted to become a professional actor? Or was there another moment where you said, I can go beyond the school play and, and actually think of making a career for myself? It's a funny thing, isn't it? When you're at school and you watch acting on TV and if you're lucky enough to go to the theatre or listen to the radio, the leap from what you do at school to what you see on professional platforms is quite big. So I, although I loved acting, I never quite knew how I would get there. 
And then this amazing drama teacher, Maureen Stack, she said to me, apply for RADA and uh, get a training, get a three-year training in acting. And I was like, oh, I'll go to university. I'll never get into drama school. I didn't even know what drama school was. Right. But I, but she pushed me and I went for the audition. And the there are three auditions I took. And the first one, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can do, I can do acting all day. I didn't realize it was an actual career in that kind of scale of things. So, yeah, uh, yeah slowly. I found my way slowly. Um, but it's a wonderful profession if you can get into it. We have uh, we have that uh, sort of feeling about the arts here in America too, which is you know unlike England is such a, a vast expanse of space. Uh, I think that most young people think that really any art, but especially acting, is something that that's done by those people over there. You know, it's not it's not something that could possibly be uh, you know affect my life in some way. Um, so so um, so you did uh, apply for and you got into RADA. I was just going to ask before we move on. Did did I believe Hull had a a company, a professional company, the Hull Truck Theater? Is that correct? Uh, or am I dreaming? They do a very yeah. successful company called Hull Truck. Although I have to say, I was only in Hull for six months of my yeah. life. So yeah. we moved to Birmingham. I grew up in Birmingham in the Midlands. Uh-huh. So that was my main place. We're very good friends with uh, David Edgar, who, uh, who ah, lives in uh, Birmingham. Yeah, uh, I've been to his house. Uh, he's ah. he's he. We've done uh, I think five of his plays over the years, um, and, and have had him over here several times. He's very generous with his his time, and I know that Birmingham Rep was a big part of his uh, his life as well. Yeah. Um, when you when you're at Rada you're thinking of yourself primarily as an actor or had you already begun to think of writing as a a, a, a a subset of what you wanted to do as an artist or no not at all i was totally an actor totally i didn't uh, think about writing until maybe five or six years out of college um uh so i was absolutely an actor and in my head i still am <laughs> although sure. now i kind of accept oh yeah i'm this writer as well Hard to get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I started writing about five or six years out of college when I was uh, I was working quite well. I was doing a lot of theatre, but there's always gaps between jobs, right? Always. always. And I thought, how do I keep myself um, buoyant? So I thought, let me try and see if I can tell a story. And was Red Velvet the first successful effort there? Yeah, it was. I, I I'd written a. a a radio series, a five-part radio series, and I'd written a monologue that was done at the Almeida. But mm-hmm. other than that, yeah, Red Velvet was my first proper play. Which is about uh, Ira Aldridge, an African-American actor who who was the first African-American actor to perform Shakespeare in England. Is that correct? Uh, um, he, well, can anyone ever be the first? I don't know. But I think he right. was, uh, yeah, African-American probably, actually. Whether he was the first black actor, I don't know. There were right. probably people before him, but he was definitely the first African-American classical actor in Britain. Right. Yeah. And, and what uh, what led you to that subject, uh, that particular subject? Was was it his his uh, being an actor that, that made you interested, or was there some some other hook that brought you into to his story? Uh, I heard about him from a reading uh, that was done at a small theatre festival. 
And when I heard that he was a real person, I, yeah. I couldn't believe that in 1824 there was a black actor on British stages and I'd never heard of him. And right. when I followed the trail and did some of the research and found out that he played Othello at the Theatre Royal Covent Garden in 1833, replacing the Olivier of his time, Edmund Keane, and then toured around Europe and was knighted and awarded and the highest paid ever actor in Russia at the time and sold out the Bolshoi. You know, I thought, oh, my God, who was this man? And then he had a state funeral in Poland in 1867. Mm -hmm. And I had done... I'd done drama O-level, drama A-level. I'd studied at RADA. You know, I was immersed in theatre and I had yeah. never, ever heard of him. Same so here. that, there we go. So that was what made me go, okay, I need to know more. I, I had an interesting experience at the uh, Tate Modern, or the Tate to Britain, sorry. Uh, you've seen the, the painting of, of Ira Aldridge uh, there. Yeah. Um, uh, we were we had a, we take little groups of people over to see plays every once in a while in in London, uh, and we were we were touring the Tate Britain, and they came to that painting. You know, we're we're talking about Ira, uh, and um, and I I noticed the the red velvet, and I said, you know, I wonder if that's where this playwright got the title for her play, mm -hmm. and the the guide had no idea that such a play existed. So he uh, said, that's going in the notes. That will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I like the publicity. I actually got the title for Red Velvet. It's not from that. It's from when I was 15. Um, my school used to bring us up to London to see plays uh -huh. in West End. And okay. so in, in a day, a theatre studies trip, we'd see two West End shows. And when uh -huh. I came up, I came when I was 15, 16, 17 and 18. And I was absolutely blown away. You know, you see... I don't know, uh, extraordinary actors on stage live. And the thing that I remembered, other than the plays and the performances, was the red velvet. This mm -hmm. faded, used red velvet curtain and all the chairs where Victorians must have sat. You know, and I and, and it's, the, it's the used nature of it, but the glory, the sort of faded glamour of it that really made me, makes me still think of theatre. And, and made you feel like you were a part of it too. I, I imagine uh, sitting yes. in those same same yes. seats. Yeah. Yes, I mean I could have been in a hoop skirt and a corset. You know, it could have <laughs> been that. It could have I could have been Victorian. It just it feels timeless, and yet it the plays moved with the times. They're contemporary, so um, it's uh, it's a lovely. I don't know, sort of a, an encasement of ghosts and uh, and current people. Isn't it a theatre? Indeed, yeah, yeah. It uh, it always feels like that when you go into one of those great old buildings. Uh, we don't have as many here. We we have some buildings that are that were part of the vaudeville circuit back in the nineteen teens and nineteen twenties, but most of them have either been torn down or converted into a parking deck or or something like that. And but there are a few. There's uh, there are a few around, and North Carolina has a couple of them here but unfortunately they just don't get used anymore for that and so we don't have that same history and I think that's to uh, that's our loss. Um, I wanted to talk with you about him but uh, first let me just ask you one other question. Um, uh, the Life of Pi was very very successful if I believe I believe I'm correct in stating that it won one of the major awards for for best new play of the year a couple of years back. Yeah. Um, the Evening Standard or the Olivier, one of those? It was the uh, Olivier. The Olivier, yeah. 
the good the big one <laughs> and um and then uh you know your uh, more recent adaptation of hamnet uh which started at the rsc and has now moved into the west end and i believe you're you're working on other adaptations or you have worked on other adaptations as well is that um is that something that that uh, that you um, enjoy, or is that? I mean, this is a little bit of a crass question, but is that just a way of making money while you're between <laughs> original plays, or how how do you feel about that as a as a oh. writer? Well, it's always about making money, isn't it? Because I yeah. need to feed myself and my kids. But um, it's ne no, that's never the motivator. I have to say, the story is the thing, and because I'm an actor, what's lovely is I. Um, I think I probably do more money work as an actor than I do as a writer because a writing commitment is so long, you know, mm. it, at, at the lowest level, it's at least two years. And at the highest, it's seven or eight years or more that actually to commit to it, I need to really love the story. So when I find something, adaptate, I really enjoy adaptation, but I need to mix it with, with um, uh, original work. So I've done two mm. original and three adaptations and in, in what I what's coming up I've got maybe two or three original two or three adaptations I like to keep it mixed mixed up do, do the adaptations gener get generated from you uh outward or or do do people bring them to you or some of each uh... they, they bring them to me no I haven't volunteered an adaptation um so the three that I've done are as you mentioned Life of Pi and Hamnet and I also adapted uh, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities I don't know if you know that. It's a very strange novel that yeah. some people say is their seminal novel of their life. And mm -hmm. some people like me go, okay, that's intriguing. I'm not quite sure what it means, but it's intriguing. Um, so I like uh, a variety. I like the different flavors and tastes. Hamnet and pie are very, very different types very. of stories. Yeah. Um, so I like the challenge of that. And also to make a, a, a dramatic structure, a linear sort of thrusting interesting driving story out of somebody else's world it's a really uh it's a challenge you um you uh, wrote him uh i imagine during the uh, the pandemic uh had you started on it before before the pandemic hit or or no yeah it's funny i i pitched it before we knew of the pandemic um mm -hmm. i pitched it to the almeida and they went oh yeah we'd like to do this and then, uh, I don't know, two or three months later, the the pandemic happened. It was, it was my fastest play because I'm really used to people going, hmm, this is interesting. And then they think for two years, well, they think of whether they want to do it or not. But yeah. this, the Almeida rang up and said, OK, we want to do it. Because obviously things had been limited and, and everyone was trying to think, how do we how do we make work in this lockdown? Yeah. Uh, so I wrote it and it was on within a year. I saw that uh, that production, uh, which, which I thought was just really, really well done. Um, it um, it's it's about um, well, this is this this is probably not in your mind at all, but it 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 seems to me that it's very relevant right now, uh, being as it is about two brothers of the same father who who are trying to find a way to understand each other. I guess. Uh, I'm thinking about what's happening in the Israel-Palestine. I don't even know if you can call it a conflict, but the, the bombardment or whatever. Uh, um, yeah. I'm just uh, wondering if that thought has crossed your mind since all of that started, or or uh, if it was on your mind when you when you first wrote the play. 
that's that's so interesting that's the wonderful thing about when you make work right the interpretation that is put on it from people's experience changes it um i hadn't thought about it i guess i i, I did him uh, a couple of years ago now and um so no i hadn't thought of it in terms of gaza and israel but that's a really interesting um not juxtaposition suggestion proposition actually yeah two brothers trying to get to know each other and does it work right yeah. right uh, your ex-husband uh, adrian lester is um one of the great um actors uh, in england uh, has has been for quite a while and he he was one of the two uh, roles did you write the play with with him in mind uh, I did, but actually it was Danny Sapani who played the other role, who I'd worked with in Invisible Cities. Uh, Invisible Cities is about Kublai Khan and Marco Polo. And uh, Danny played um, Kublai Khan. And uh, and he was absolutely brilliant. And I remember thinking, oh, I'd, I'd like to write something else for you. And, uh, and so when the idea came up, I thought I wanted to write something smaller because I'd done Life of Pi, which was enormous. And Invisible Cities, although it was two actors, was a very big um, cast of dancers and all sorts of things going on. Uh, and so I thought, hmm, and I got this idea of the brothers and that's when I thought, yeah, Danny and Adrian would work. So that's how that came about. But I wrote it for both of them specifically, yeah. I saw, I saw his uh, company years ago, uh, back before I knew who he was or, or frankly, who Stephen Sondheim was uh, years and years ago and uh, thought that was a, a very revelatory uh, production and to see him again that much later um uh you know working on something at that scale was just really lovely um when um him um i don't want to give too much away about the the play because our listening audience will not have seen it yet most likely but um it it's mostly it feels like a very joyous play and a very um upward uh thrust uh, toward the relationship that's building between the two brothers and then it uh it ends uh somewhat more um uh tragically i think um and um i've wondered um about that over the years i've wondered why you um thought of that as the right way to to conclude that story um and um and how that landed on audiences. I know how it did the night I saw the play, but I'm just curious if you have any any more thoughts about that that ending. That's interesting. Why did I why did I go towards the tragic in the end? I mean, my starting point was to have a, a love story between two heterosexual men. Uh, mm. So that's what I wanted. I wanted to explore love between two men, and uh, a, a, not a romance, but a, a building of a bond. And uh, and it was based on my relationship with lots of friends, my male friends, and sort of wider circle of, of 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 male people around me. Because I thought we're all the world is full of stereotypes, right? And uh, we talk often about the stereotypes of women, but I thought the stereotypes of men don't allow for the softer elements that I see my male friends always expressing about. You know how oh I like your shirt, I like your hair, you know whatever they're they're they're. Um, uh, beauty regime is these things you just don't expect men to discuss it really and I, I wanted to see that kind of um, intimacy um, and I guess the tragic turn well it's a play something has to happen there needs to be some drama underneath it otherwise we watch two people who fall in love and then they end up in love and that's it 
that's not really a play. When you come for a, an hour and a half, two hours, um, there needs to be contrast, shift, um, uh, opposition, conflict, difficulty that is overcome. I guess that's what I think of drama. And if I was to make them fall in love, have a lovely relationship and walk off into the sunset, I would personally, as an as an audience member, find that quite unsatisfying. I want to be a bit more exercised in the theatre. So I suppose I was writing for myself as an audience member. Music, uh, it seems to me, plays a big part in that story as well. Were you were you uh, dictating what that music would be throughout, or did the director primarily do that, or the actors? How did that that happen? That was me. That was me completely. So I'm a kid of the 80s. I grew up in the 80s. I was a teenager in the 80s. So a lot of the music, that's why the the two brothers are 50. And it was set in, you know, they would have been born when I was born in the 60s, late 60s, 70s. And um, no, that was completely me. And it was music that I uh, felt told a story. So there's an, there's an innate story in each song. Uh, and there's a sort of vibe in each song somebody asked me how did you choose the music I said it's just stuff I like <laughs> and there's a joy in that but then there's a lot of, you know things like lean on me and um down here on the ground you know these are that they, they, they've got such a evocative mood in them and you and and it fits story and it, and it had a clever way of uh, going in and out of what I was trying to do and the hip-hop, I just I just like it. And it, it gave it gave a good... I think when you look back at the 80s, I look back at the 80s sometimes and it's quite ridiculous. You know, you look at the styles and the fashions and the music seems quite innocent, really, compared to what we have now. Um, and so there's something slightly silly about it, which I really wanted to celebrate. Looking back at your youth uh, puts you back there, doesn't it? Gives you the joy that you felt and the sort of drama that you felt at the time. But there's a, there's a, a freedom in it. I think I liked that, the freedom of the music. Well, that that is the effect the play had on me uh, as I sat there at the Almeida that, that night um, watching this uh, very joyous uh, relationship bloom. Um, and uh, and it was uh, it, right in the middle of the pandemic era. Um, it, it felt like a, a great gift, honestly, um, uh, not just to me, but to the whole audience. And it really felt like a communal uh, gift as well. So uh, I think we all experienced that at the same time, uh, regardless of how it how it may end. Uh, and you know, as as Jim Morrison said, nobody gets out of here alive. So I guess uh, all of us, <laughs> tragically, one way or the other. But uh, uh, Miss Chakrabarty, this has been fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate your making the time to talk with us, and we are uh, ebullient about uh, being able to to do your play and uh, aim to do it uh, justice. So so thank you for uh, allowing us that. Oh, I'm thrilled that you're doing it. I, I, you know, I love hearing that there's another production going on. I wish I could see it. But good luck to everybody with it. And thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you.